Entreat me not to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. That is Ruth 1.16, and this is the Living the Word Bible Podcast. I'm Sarah Chris Meyer, talking with women about the Bible and the difference it makes in our lives. I expect you've heard those beautiful words of devotion that I just read quoted at weddings, but interestingly enough, they were first said by the widowed Ruth to her mother-in-law. That in itself, I think, is a good reason to take another look at this little book about courtship and marriage. There's more here than you might think. And here to talk about the book of Ruth is Dr. Kelly Anderson, who wrote the introduction to that book in the Living the Word Women's Bible as well as the introduction to the Old Testament and a portrait of Judith. She is a contributing author to the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture, and she serves as Chair of Sacred Scripture and a trustee of St. Charles Borromeo Seminary in Philadelphia, where she also speaks to local Catholic groups on Scripture and our faith. Kelly, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, sir, for having me. Very happy to be here. Yeah, so glad to be talking to you about Ruth today. And before we dive into her story, I think this must be one of the best-loved books of the Bible, and Ruth herself probably ranks among the best-loved women in Scripture. Why do you suppose that is? Well, I think the story is so charming. It's um, uh, We have excellent characters, like the, the beautiful, modest, and humble Ruth, who um, captures the heart of Boaz, this extraordinarily good, noble, upright man, and uh, they're coming together. It's, it's a beautiful love story, and I think we're made for, for love and for beautiful love stories. And so this kind of captures us, captures our imagination, and we get, I think, uh, almost swept away by the magic of the love that's uh, portrayed in the story, as well as the aspect of sacrifice, which is part of what love is. It's not, it's not Disney. There's real mm-hmm. sacrifices that each of them make, and yet um, those sacrifices bring about, um, in the odd sense, human fulfillment in a way which is not immediately seen. So I think the deep messages resonate with people, perhaps even on levels that we're not even conscious of. Yeah, it's really beautiful. So just thinking of the book as a whole, you know, while it's named after Ruth, and she's obviously at the center of the story, uh, it begins and ends with the family that she marries into. Can you give us the overall context and what's the background to Ruth's story? Yeah, so we begin with a family in Bethlehem, and they are from the tribe of Judah. And the, um, the man's name is Elimelech, which means my God is king. El is God, and Melech is king. And his wife is Naomi. And Naomi means something like sweet or pleasant. And they live in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is the house of bread. So that's an area in Judah. And we know, of course, our Savior comes forth from this land. And it's an interesting thing that that Elimelech decides during a time of famine to take his family into the land of Moab. Um, Moab, it's not a great place. We hear in (laughs) Genesis 19 that the Moabites are the descendants of Lot and his daughter. So Lot's daughters, because they were bereft of any men and husbands, plied their father with alcohol and had children with him. And so the Moabites are seen as descendants of an incestuous relationship. And then beyond that, we hear in Numbers 22 to 24, as well as Numbers 25, that the Moabites caused the Israelites to commit idolatry. 
And so as the Israelites are wandering through the desert, coming into the land of Israel, they pass through Moab and it's there they're tempted by the Moabites and they commit the terrible sin of idolatry, breaking the first commandment. So for Elimelech to leave Bethlehem, the house of bread, this uh, the place of God's promises, and take them to Moab is a very interesting decision. Mm-hmm. I don't know that we can definitively say it's a sinful one, but it is um, one which we would not expect a faithful Jewish man to make. Why would he think that a place of Moab would be a place of human flourishing and well-being? And as a matter of fact, when we get to Moab, what we see is death rules, doesn't it? Elimelech first dies, leaving Naomi alone. And then there's a moment, I guess, of reprieve, of stability, when her two sons marry Moabite women. And we think, okay, now we can have some life here. But the women go 10 years without any children. They're barren women. And then at the end of that, Naomi's sons die. And so we have this widow truly in a crisis situation. She's in the land of Moab. She's a foreigner. She has no husband. She has no children, uh, no sons to protect or to provide for her. And so we go, ironically, from God is my king in this place of, of the house of bread to a crisis situation of death and despair. Hmm. So uh, at that point, she decides to go back. What, what happens then? So she hears that the God had blessed her people back in Bethlehem with a harvest. And so she decides to return. And that word return is very interesting. It can mean simply to go back or return, but it can also, it can also have uh, connotations of a conversion hmm. that, that she is uh, returning uh, not just to a land, but also perhaps to a, a relationship with God. Hmm. And, and again, you know, we can't say definitively, but, but just the language there lets us um, consider that it might be a moment of conversion and not just simply because there's food to be had. Although she decides that she wants to be called no longer Naomi, pleasant, but Mara, bitter. So uh, um, I wonder if somewhere underneath that bitterness, she's remembering a good time and wanting to return to that. She asks her daughters, well, first of all, she, I mean, they're a family, she and her daughter-in-laws, so they're going to go back together, but then she makes a very reasonable suggestion to them, especially given that, I don't, I don't remember if Israelites are allowed to marry Moabite women, but I don't think it's really looked well upon, so for two Moabite young women to go to Israel uh, would not bode well for their future, so she suggests that they go back to their parents um, to be taken care of. And then what happens next? Yeah. So, so you're right about that. There is almost something maybe even dangerous about bringing Moabite women. Um, <laughs> they're not loved by the Israelites. That's true. And what happens is, um, they first say they will go with her, but she, she insists, she says, no, go back to your father's house. You can have a future there. I have no more children to give you. And, uh, and so Orpah leaves and yet Ruth, it says clings to her. And that's the word that's used in Genesis 2.24 for Abraham clinging to his wife. And so it's almost, almost almost like a covenantal kind of clinging. And Ruth makes this great promise that you read at the beginning of, of the podcast that she will not leave her mother-in-law. And so Ruth will leave her family, her gods, her land, her people, her language, and go to a land hitherto unknown um, and not with a man with whom she could have a future, have children, but with her mother-in-law, mm-hmm. an old, um, I guess, decrepit, maybe we could say woman, an, old, an elder woman who has 
no possibility of giving Ruth any kind of a future. And in this, she's seen as similar to Abraham, who likewise makes that great journey and goes from his land to a new land he doesn't know. Um, but Abraham had a vision of God. He had a promise of God. We don't know if Ruth had some sort of a vision or a promise. This is uh, maybe the greatest act of charity in the Old Testament. Hmm. Someone deeply sacrificing themselves for a uh, vulnerable older woman. It's quite remarkable, really. Yeah, an old bitter woman. Yes, an old bitter woman, yes. Although I do think, I mean, how else does Ruth know anything about the God of Israel apart from learning it from Naomi and Elimelech? And in spite of Naomi's bitterness, I have to think that even in Naomi's decision to return, it's almost like, okay, I've had a horrible life, I'm bitter about it, and yet here's where I belong. (laughs) There's maybe even the God who loves me, because somehow Ruth is drawn to go to that God. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. She does make an oath, doesn't she? Yeah. Um, Your God will be my God, but then, you know, may God do thus and more to me if I... Uh, if anything comes between you and me. And so she calls upon Naomi's God and speaks to him as if he were her own God. And then in chapter two, Boaz says to her that you have come under the shelter of God's wings. You found Mm -hmm. protection under his wings. So I think we can see this almost as a conversion of Ruth because that word return is also used for Ruth. Ruth is the subject of the verb to return, but Ruth is not returning. She's never been to Israel, at least if we follow the story. So what is she returning to? And I think, again, there's that nuance of conversion. Yeah, she's an outsider converting to to God. Uh, So she could describe, she's like the quintessential convert, maybe you would say. Yes, yes, exactly. That's right. So to back up a little bit, she's, you know, she goes back to Israel, or she goes to Israel with Naomi, and her attention to Naomi continues. I mean, she's very much a self-sacrificing, loving daughter-in-law, working very hard to find food for herself and her mother-in-law. And so how does Boaz come into the picture? You've mentioned him a couple times. Yeah, so here um, Ruth decides, as you, as you mentioned, to, to glean in the field, and that's her right as a foreigner, that is after the field has been has been harvested, foreigners or orphans of the poor can go through the field and pick what's left and and live on that. And so Ruth decides to, to do this work. This is hard work. It's, it's um, a kind of humiliating work too, to go mm. through a field which has already been picked. And she goes off to do this, which again shows her sacrifice. And she happens, as the text says, to land in the field of Boaz <laughs> without knowing anything about him. And so we see here again, the providential hand of God who leads her to this um, this particular man's field. And he immediately notices her and he inquires about who she is. And upon learning that this is Ruth who had come back with Naomi, um, he gives some orders that she is to be treated well. She's not to be bothered. She is to um, pick from the grain and, and she is to be given some water to drink. And when she asks Boaz, why are you looking upon me with such favor? Uh, he, he says that he has heard what she did for Naomi and she falls on her feet before him, obviously relieved. This is why he's giving her this particular attention. She sees that his motives are very good and very noble and she shows her gratitude toward him. And, and we see that, that Boaz is a little bit charmed by this woman. He initially um, is, is kind to her because of her particularly good act, which she had done for Naomi. 
But you see, as he continues to study her and watch her, he finds her ever more enchanting. I think it's her humility, her modesty, her gratitude, which moves him. And he increasingly shows greater acts of mercy and charity toward her, such as allowing her to eat of their food at lunchtime. And then he says, no, don't, don't glean, go with the regular women who are harvesting. So that way she's able to gather more with a little bit less work and even leaves things that, that are easy for her to pick up along the way. <laughs> so making the job as easy as possible for her. It's interesting too, Ruth's reaction to Boaz. She does, you know, when he says, I had a complete account of what you did for your mother-in-law. She doesn't say, well, let me tell you about my mother-in-law. This lady <laughs> is rough. And she didn't even say, thank you. There, there's no complaining. There's no saying, yes, I, I did all this. I'm so wonderful. There's no arrogance. There's no pride. She responds with such grace and humility. And I think that's why Boaz is moved by her. She does indeed show herself to be a very gracious woman. It's interesting that Naomi doesn't say, hey, I have this rich relative, you know, Boaz, why don't you go glean in his field? You know, she doesn't, she almost doesn't seem to know about him, and yet he's watching. And you get, um, you know, if we look at a parallel of, of conversion and coming to God, isn't it true that God reaches out to us first? And here's Boaz seeing her, noticing her, and then reaching out to her and loving her. You know, before we go on to, to what happens next, which is quite important, explain the whole idea of the Leverite marriage. This is a stipulation in Israelite law that if a woman's husband should die, then she should be married by the, the brother of the man who died and raise up an heir. Now, the reason for this is to continue the inheritance of the man so that his name wouldn't die, but also to keep the land within the family. So the, uh, the brother-in-law then will take this woman as his wife and give her a child in order that the dead man's name might continue and that the inheritance of the land might be held for future generations. Now, the brother-in-law doesn't have to do this. Okay, He can refuse. And this is called halitza. This is the taking off of the shoe. And so the woman spits and, and uh, shows her contempt for him and he refuses to marry her if he refuses to marry her. So that is his, it is his right to say no. I mean, if he really hates this woman and he can't stand her, there is a way of getting out of this, but it is considered to be shameful. Um, what does the woman get from this? Well, the woman certainly then gets a son as well. She gets stature. She gets uh, economic security from this. So it is, I think, meant to be seen as a win-win, although it is a little bit odd for us today. Yeah, and so Naomi, in returning, you know, she's old. She thinks she's too old to get a husband. Maybe she thinks she's too old to have another child. After all, she has grown men, you know, who were then married for 10 years and died. So maybe she's past childbearing, although it doesn't say that. She just said, you know, am I, am I going to have children again? And then you're going to wait for those sons to grow up and marry you? That's just, she sees it as hopeless. Right, right, right. You see a woman who is really defeated here. You see that throughout these first two chapters. And then she becomes a little bit galvanized as she sees Ruth uh, going out and gleaning and bringing home food. And she, hmm, you know, she starts to maybe take on a little bit of new life within her, kind of wakes her up a little bit. Yeah, she, she clearly notices quickly that Boaz is paying particular attention to Ruth. You know, whether, whether Ruth notices that that or not, we don't know, but Naomi notices it. And she sees Boaz as kind of the, 
um, possible savior, you know, a, a person who's going to solve their problems, not just providing, but restoring their family name, restoring their line in Israel, all of which they had lost. You know, possibly there's some guilt there too, because they left it behind for Moab. <laughs> Moving into probably the climax of this, this book, you know, the harvest is in full swing. Naomi knows that the men will go to the threshing floor, they'll wor work all day on the harvest, and then they'll basically have a big meal, they will drink, and they will go to sleep on the threshing floor. And so she sends Ruth to put on her prettiest dress, get dressed up, go, you know, after night falls, and lay at Boaz's feet after he drinks and lies down to sleep, and says that Boaz will tell her what to do. <laughs> so that that just is such a strange thing to our our ears. What's going on here? Yeah. So Naomi is um, encouraging Ruth to, I guess we could say, offer herself to Boaz. But she does this as a way of, I think, providing for Ruth. I think she hmm. sees that, um, remember what she said all the way back in chapter one, that she wanted them to have a family and a husband. And she thought their best possibility of having that would be to stay in Moab. But now she sees, I think, her responsibility to provide for Ruth. Hmm. And so they come up with this kind of strange plan that Ruth will present herself to Boaz and make an offering to him. And Ruth, Ruth does this. And this, this particular scene, it's really, it's really quite, quite pregnant. It's, um, so Ruth goes in and she, um, so there's a couple of things. Ruth goes into the threshing floor. The, the threshing floor, as you said, is the place, um, where, um, rituals would take place at the threshing floor. So, for example, pagan rituals or liturgical rituals, the temple is later built on the threshing floor. So the threshing floor is the place where God can reveal himself. And Ruth goes into the threshing floor and she comes up from Moab and then goes into the threshing floor. That's the, um, the path that the Ark of the Covenant takes, right? Hmm. So the Ark of the Covenant comes up from the wilderness, passes through Moab, goes into the promised lands and ends up in Judah at a threshing floor. And when she goes into the threshing floor, she uncovers his feet. That is, she renders him properly attired to be at holy ground. Think about Moses when he has the, um, the vision of the of the angel, God comes to him, remove your sandals. Joshua likewise is commanded to remove his sandals because he's on holy ground. So this place is now holy ground and Boaz is properly attired to be in holy ground. Um, then it goes on to say that Boaz shivers or trembles. And that's a word that can be used in, um, in Exodus, for example, when people have an experience of God. And then the other thing we hear is that she lays down at his feet and that's the same position that we see Samuel takes with the Ark of the Covenant. And so there's all these very small indications that this is actually more than just a woman going in and kind of making a provocative gesture, but this is a divinely commissioned woman going in. It's almost as if Boaz is having an experience of God. Then hmm. it's interesting when he wakes up, she gives him a mission, a mission, and so often in the Old Testament, sometimes angels come and they give a mission, almost it's called almost like a, um, a mandatory epiphany. They're given a mandate or a task and she gives him a mandate. And so this scene is quite similar then to certain figures in the Old Testament who receive a mandate from a heavenly, uh, a heavenly commissionary, someone who was commissioned to go to them. But where is the presence of the divine? We have to ask ourselves, where's the angel? Where's the vision? Where's God? And it seems to be in this woman, Ruth. Hmm. And where does this idea come from that the woman could be 
almost a dwelling place of God, a place where God resides. I think it comes about from the fact that women uh, hold within themselves children and everyone is made in the image and likeness of God. And so the woman has within her being something which is the image and likeness of God. And later on in the Old Testament literature, we see, for example, in Judith and the Song of Songs, the woman is directly compared to the Ark of the Covenant, that the woman will become the dwelling place of God. Uh, this prefigures, of course, the Virgin Mary, who is the new Ark of the Covenant and holds within herself God himself. Hmm. So we see in this kind of strange, strange mission of Ruth, if you will, something which shadows the Blessed Mother. And later on, what will happen with her? And Boaz, thanks be to God, has a pure heart and clean eyes. And when he awakes and he sees her there, he understands all of this. And he says to her, you have shown greater mercy or a greater kindness now than you did before. And he considers this act that she did a greater act of charity and mercy than what she had done before and leaving her people and her family and her nation, her language and all of that. This act is a greater act of charity. Because what has she done? She's offered herself to him, the, the most precious thing that she has. She's placed it at his feet and offered herself so that they might come together and, as we hear later, have a child for Naomi. And so this act then is even a greater act than leaving everything. And she will give herself to bring about life in this family where there had been no life and bring a son where the sons had died. Um, and, and Boaz, to his credit, recognizes this. I, I'm still trying to absorb all that you just said about her carrying life in herself. And it brings to mind, the uh, to me, Genesis 3, where we have the prophecy that, you know, the seed of a woman, this woman and her seed will conquer basically the, the serpent and his seed. And here, this idea that within her would be a, a redeemer. And of course, we know Ruth is going to, from, from her line, the line of uh, Ruth and Boaz will come the Messiah. So a lot of beautiful connections here. It's amazing. You're absolutely right on that. That's right. Yep. Uh, what's the command? What's the commission that she gives him? To be her redeemer, spread your garment over me. And I think that recalls this, um, almost like, like the wings, like the, so the language is a little bit same, the same in chapter two when he said that the Lord will, will protect you under his wings. So she kind of uses language like that. Take me under your wings and, mm -hmm. and be my redeemer. So the redeemer is the one who is supposed to protect a family who's in distress. So if they've had to sell their land to buy back their land, if they're kidnapped to pay for their ransom, um, if they are murdered to somehow avenge their murder. Um, nowhere, though, do we hear of a redeemer who is to marry someone. So this is a, a kind of a creative take on, on one being a redeemer. It is, though, isn't it the closest kinsman who is to take that role? So in a way, both of them are coming together, the leveret marriage plus the kinsman redeemer in one thing. That's right. That's right. So the background to this would also be then the Leverite marriage. That's correct. So we seem to have those two traditions coming together, that of a redeemer and that of the Leverite marriage. Right. So Boaz is very much a gentleman, you know, even though she's come and said, you know, spread your wings over me and here I am in the middle of the night. He gives her another gift of grain and packs her off before anybody knows she's there and really, you know, safeguards her reputation uh, and her purity. 
sends her away, and then um, everything ties up kind of happily ever after uh, at the end with them married. And although she was previously barren, they do have a son. But jumping ahead a little bit, this is toward the end of the of the story now. The women congratulate Naomi. Yeah, can I can I just interject one thing there? I just want to say one, one, one other thing. We have that kind of whole thing at the gate with the men coming to visit. Oh yeah, explain that. Yeah, and so I think that lets us know that that Boaz, by taking Ruth, is also making a sacrifice because his own um, his own economic situation will be depreciated. Because there is a, a Goel who was closer to a redeemer, a kinsman who was closer to Ruth. And when he hears that he's going to get the land, he's like, great, I'll take it. But then when he hears he has to marry Ruth and raise up a child, he backs out. I can't do that. Explain why he would do that. It's not because he thinks she's ugly and hates her and doesn't want her. To no, he's going to take an economic hit that he's not willing to take. And why is that? Because, I mean, imagine having a piece of land and you have to work the land and keep the land, but you get none of the profits. Profits won't go to you. Because it goes to her son. That's right. That's right. It will go to Ruth and Naomi, and then eventually the son. So you're basically, it's imagine like taking on another job, a part-time or full-time job and working and getting no paycheck for it. So just to be clear, the um, the profit would go to to her first husband's line. That's correct. Yeah. And so we see then that Boaz, by marrying her, is also sacrificing himself so there's a mutual sacrifice. So she sacrifices, in a sense, herself, but he's also going to take quite an economic hit from this by doing this. So he doesn't take her for lustful reasons. Um, he, too, by entering into this, this marriage, um, has his own sacrifices. And so I think that whole episode there is to let us know that for Boaz as well, this is... Um, a great act of mercy and charity on on his part as well. And so, unlike a lot of fairy tales, we really have the the picture of the mutual self giving and self donation that goes into married love as it is meant to be. That's right. And on one hand, the tremendous joy and blessing, but also the sacrifice. And in the way this story wraps up, the understanding that when you do give yourself that way, you receive back in multiple fold, <laughs> you know, the, the blessing just keeps pouring out. It's so interesting. Here we are some, I mean, depending on when you wait to date the judges, some 3,000 years later talking about Ruth and just uh, entranced by her. You're right. That, that sacrifice, uh, that loving sacrifice in some way attains to eternity. And not that in 3,000 years people are going to be talking about us if we make sacrifices, but it does almost break the limits of time and space and enter into this eternal realm. It's never forgotten. No sacrifice goes without some kind of, I think, eternal, that, that has a, it has an eternal dimension to it. Mm -hmm. So we might want to talk a little bit more about that. But first, um, talk a little bit about the very end when the, the women, it ends with the women and what they are saying Yes, yeah, so the women gather around and they and they rejoice uh, with Naomi and they, they cry out with joy. Naomi has a son, and it just seems so impossible that this old, barren, bitter woman could now have a son. And Naomi holds this this miraculous child on her lap. Certainly not a biological miracle uh, because Ruth is is. I mean, I mean, I guess we in one sense we could say it is a biological miracle. I mean, she was married for ten years and didn't have a child. Now God blesses her with Boaz. Um, but Ruth is still within the age of a woman who could have children. But the miracle is is the deep, deep charity and love that these two people exhibit in coming together to bless this old barren woman. And it's it's just lovely. And then they mention uh, Tamar. They mention Leah and Rachel Tamar, these other figures, these women of the past. And Tamar in particular, 
I think by mentioning her, because she's a woman who had children through odd means, but then her children were accepted in the family. And I think they're letting Naomi know that although this is rather unconventional to have a child through a Moabite, that they accept this. They accept this child as their own. Hmm. And the child is accepted in the community. He will bear the line, uh, the name of the family line coming from Naomi and the community not, not only accepts it, but exhibits great joy and happiness at it. They, they rejoice in her for her great gift of having, of having a child, a son. And then, of course, it ends up uh, with a couple verses that are probably lifted whole and transposed into the beginning of Matthew in his genealogy, where it shows just how the line carries, you know, from Judah through through Boaz and Ruth, mentioning Ruth to the first anointed king from whom the Messiah will come. So beautiful that. In this early book, we have this picture that eventually the the Messiah, the Davidic king, the anointed one, will come through the union of an Israelite and a Moabite. Yeah, but in a sense, the Moabites do trace their lineage back to Lot, who was a relative of Abraham. So it's kind of like a returning of the family, the gathering in of the nations, if you will, and bringing them back to their home where they're supposed to be. And, and I think Ruth prefigures that, maybe even in the Ten Lost Tribes who return through their conversion to Christ and in the church. Yes, as you said in the beginning, it is a charming story, and I think we are attracted to it because it's such a, a lovely love story. But then why do you think it's in the Bible? <laughs> you know, does it have deeper significance for, for Israel, uh, for Christians, for us? What are the layers of meaning there that we should be taking from it? Oh my goodness, there's so many. Uh, first, I think to never lose hope in a place of despair. Mm. In places of despair, um, where there seems to be no life, there's famine, there's death that rules everywhere. God can break in in the most extraordinary and unusual ways to bring mm. about life and great life and, and blessings. So I think that's first. Also, um, I, I think we have a theology of the woman being presented here, don't we? The woman is the vehicle of God's blessings and the great respect then that I think the Jews have for women and seeing them as these blessed creatures of God, creatures who bring forth this, this life of God, a human being in which God enters into. And they are the means by which this life of God then continues. And maybe even hints and shadows that a woman will be uh, an Ark of the Covenant uh, in, in the future after the Ark presumably is destroyed. We also see in Ruth, as, as I mentioned this, this gathering of the nations, the openness of, of the Israelites to people who come and accept their God and they become part of the family and part of the line. It's a little bit unconventional, a little bit unusual, but I think the joy of the women is also supposed to be the joy um, that the community is exhibited to have when anyone comes into the community and accepts God as, as their God, that it forms familial bonds um, and so I think maybe that's that's something helpful for us today that we are we are a family. Every baptized Christian then is part of a, a part of a family, and we should have that love and respect and reverence for all baptized Christians that that perhaps we have within our own families. And then just I think a lovely theology of marriage, the the sacrifice uh, that comes from marriage. Boaz, who was such a noble man, such a good man. I remember teaching this this book once, and oh my goodness, the, the, <laughs> the women were. <laughs> I want a Boaz, and you know everybody of course wants a Boaz. 
um, such a noble upright man. So a great example of, of what a man is and can be and ought to be the purity that he has and, and looking at, at the woman. And Ruth is, of course, uh, an extraordinary woman in every way. Her sacrifice, her modesty, her humility, her gratitude, her love of God. She's just an extraordinary woman and one who can serve an example for all of us. And there's something that Boaz calls her a woman of valor is how it's often not translated, but uh, it's the same phrase that's used in Proverbs 31 to talk about this, you know, a woman of valor who can find a good wife, some, sometimes it's um, translated or a good woman, but it talks about a woman who fears the Lord and breaks that down into what does that mean? And in the Hebrew scriptures, right after that comes the story of Ruth. So it's kind of hard not to see her when she's the only one in the Bible who's described in that same way, you know, with that phrase as being this example. So, you know, and I remember as a, a young woman myself when I was, you know, in college and afterward, I thought, wow, this is the, you know, the ideal that's being held up for us. So when you're Protestant, you don't look up to Mary, you kind of skip over her. So I guess we had Ruth to look up to. <laughs> Um, not realizing she was such a, a picture of Mary, but it seemed so unattainable. And yet, you know, that's what standards are. They're up there high, so you can reach for them. And, you know, thank goodness for the grace of God that he can help us to be like that, either like Boaz or like Ruth. Oh, how beautiful. That's just lovely. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Is there a passage in this book that is really meaningful to you? Um, I'd love to hear about it a little bit, and then maybe we could um, just read it and reflect on it at the end before I close in prayer. Well, I love that passage at the end, at the end of the book, chapter 4, 14 to 17. And I just love how the woman cry out with such joy that Naomi has a son. Um, and you can think about throughout the scriptures, that gift of a son, um, Abraham and Sarah, who waited so long, and they finally had a son. And Israel, who waits so long for the Messiah, and finally the son comes. Um, and you think about all the barren women, actually, in the Old Testament. We can think about Hannah, for example, or even uh, Manoah and his wife, how they are waiting for uh, a son. And so the greatest gift, right, the greatest gift that one could have. And so here are these women. How, how can they not rejoice over this barren, lost woman who now has a son? And I think that should give all of us hope and in any situation that we might be in, that um, God can bring life in places of death and despair. He turns these situations of, uh, of death into unexpected places of life. And so I just love that, that, that final uh, exclamation in, in the book. When this comes out, we'll be heading into Advent. And, uh, you know, maybe this is kind of a different way to look at Advent, to spend some time reading it and praying about it and looking at Boaz as God or as a, you know, a Christ figure and Ruth as representing ourselves and allow it to bring us a little bit deeper into, into the season. Beautiful. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and read that. This is Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, and then I'll close us in prayer. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. 
Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word and for the life and strength it brings. Especially today, thank you for this book of Ruth and the picture that it gives of your love for us and your redemption of us. Open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive and ponder what you say to us as we read. And give us grace to love and live your word in our daily lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, the living word. Amen. Mary, Mother of the Word. Pray for us. Thank you, Kelly, for sharing your uh, wisdom with us and all the insights that you've had into this lovely little book. Um, is there anything you'd like to add before we go? No, just thank you, and God bless you for all the work that you do, and may God continue to bless you in your ministry. Thank you. So this is Sarah Chris Meyer, and this has been the Living the Word Bible Podcast. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me every Thursday for conversations with women who love and live God's Word. Please tell a friend and join our Instagram community at Living the Word Bible. I would love to hear from you. Also, there are a couple months left on the special offer for $5 off the Living the Word Catholic Women's Bible and also free shipping. Just go to AveMariaPress.com and use the promo code BiblePodcast. And God bless you as you read His Word.